today on Against the Grain, what's happened to global justice organizing in the two decades since the first World Social Forum gathering? What dynamics and processes did the forum set in motion, and what globally influential activist formations has it shaped or spawned? I'm CS. The scholar and organizer Jackie Smith talks about the forum and its impact on movements around the world, coming right up. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Twenty years ago, in Porto Alegre, Brazil, the first World Social Forum brought together people from around the globe interested in working toward a more just and equitable world. What was the forum and its successor gatherings about? What emerged, what has emerged from all that dialogue and exchange, all that networking and listening and strategizing? In the eyes of Jackie Smith, the World Social Forum generated a set of networking processes and movement-building dynamics that have shaped a number of important social movements operating on the global level. In an article she wrote for the journal Socialism and Democracy, Smith underscores the significance of the World Social Forum and describes three strands of organizing that it directly influenced, the Right to the City movement, Via Campesina, and Indigenous Peoples movements. Jackie Smith is a sociologist at the University of Pittsburgh and a veteran organizer. Among many other things, she served on the National Planning Committee for the 2010 United States Social Forum, and she helped found the Pittsburgh Human Rights City Alliance. She's written widely on globalization, human rights, and social movements, and her article, Making Other Worlds Possible, The Battle in Seattle in World Historical Context, appeared in the journal Socialism and Democracy. When Jackie and I connected recently, I asked her about the significance of the battle in Seattle, the 1999 protests targeting the ministerial conference of the World Trade Organization. The battle in Seattle was momentous because it was not the beginning of the struggles against economic globalization and the policies of the World Trade Organization and the World Bank and the IMF, uh, but really what it did was represent the convergence of a lot of struggles that had been building around the world, really starting in the global south, uh, which resistance had been going on for decades against some of the policies of these institutions um, and the networks of movement activists who were protesting against the development policies that governments were enacting at the behest of these global institutions um, had generated protests in in all parts of the world and the networks of these movements uh, we're building and, and developing an analysis of, of what was wrong, what they uh, were opposing. And the convergence of many of these forces in Seattle in 1999 um, was important in that it, it was the first significant and very visible protest in the global north, in uh, what activists were calling the belly of the beast in the United States, which was a country that was really pushing a lot of these policies on the rest of the world. Um, so it was a very visible and prominent and, and forceful statement that the people of the world were, were opposed to this vision of how we should organize the world. It was also significant in that it generated a new movement building process around movements that were inspired and um, gained a lot of hope that a different world became possible with the Battle of Seattle and the, uh, and the movements that um, had been coming together and were really strengthened and gained a, a lot of momentum at that time. And so a lot of the significance of the battle in Seattle comes from what has happened since then and the movement dynamics that were generated by that really important and forceful no that global activists said to the policies of economic globalization that had been advancing pretty steadily since the late 1970s. 
And when you say that the battle in Seattle had an influence on subsequent developments within the global justice movement, are you referring primarily to the networks established between and among activists at that Seattle WTO gathering? So the, the networks were a starting point, um, but what I think really helped amplify the effects of the battle in Seattle were the the fact that there was the internet and technology that was enabling activists to communicate and share ideas and perspectives and analyses of, of what happened in Seattle or what were the messages of Seattle, that I think really was able to, to happen on a level that, that hadn't really happened um, to the extent you know, that we're, we're very familiar with now. And so it was uh, created some, some possibilities for learning and for reaching an audience well beyond the networks that were actually there in Seattle. The other thing that happened through these networks is that the folks in those networks were continuing the conversation about how do we keep this pressure on and really push for the changes that we know are needed and fight what we knew were the efforts of governments to, to try to get back on track with, with the trade agreements that the powerful countries um, still wanted to pursue. Um, and so the, those networks continued to, to work to organize and, and find ways to, to keep that global pressure on and to keep global attention to the critiques that they were lifting up and stories about the inequality that was really being generated by economic globalization. And, and I think the terms and attention to inequality and poverty that really became a much more important part of the global conversation among elites than it had been before when there was a very celebratory tone of economic globalization and, and the growth that it was generating. The downside was received very, very little, if any, attention. So the battle in Seattle was 1999. The convening of the first World Social Forum took place in 2001 in Porto Alegre, Brazil. To what extent was that first World Social Forum gathering an effort to to build on the to consciously build on the momentum of Seattle and to further the the aims of many of the activists and organizers who were in Seattle in 99. Well, the World Social Forum was was really launched by some of the networks that were actively involved in mobilizing around the Seattle protest. So um, there was that that direct link. And really, it grew out of conversations that, that, as I said before, were happening online. There was a lot of exchange among activist networks about how do we continue to fight the policies that were, were being advanced in not just the World Trade Organization, but also in the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Um, and so there had been a number of meetings, uh, global meetings of these institutions and activists were targeting them. Um, but that was becoming more and more difficult, both because there were tensions between activists over whether to use um, violence against property in those protests. Many protesters felt that there was a need to keep protests um, peaceful in order to really get the attention on the message of these movements and, and to not um, play into the, the possibilities for repression against our movements. So, so there were some important conflicts and tensions in the movement about whether that could be continued, that these global protests against the, the financial institutions. And there was an effort to figure out what, what else we could do to get more traction on some of the, the concerns that, that movements were raising. And so activists in Europe and in Brazil came together to convene a space where um, activists could discuss and, and learn and share ideas and models of action and analyses. So the slogan, Another World is Possible, was put out there and 
activists were invited to to meet and share experiences and build networks and and build movements around the project of countering this economic globalization with a people's led globalization that was that was again a, a real kind of shift in movement strategy away from a confrontational strategy towards one that was really focused on building movements and and building an alternative to the model of globalization that elites were advocating and advancing. Tell me more about how good and how effective the World Social Forum was at bringing together people from different countries and different walks of life. I think the World Social Forum was really unprecedented in the diversity of people and groups it was able to convene. I've called it one of the most important political developments of our time. And I, I believe that so because it, it really did convene everyone from people living in shanty towns, in mostly in the countries where, where the social forum convened, um, to people who work in the United Nations, and, and even um, people from within national governments. Um, but by and large, the, the participation is not from um, those centers of government, but the leadership is in the movements. So many of, of the participants were seasoned activists, um, but a great many of them were, were from a range of social classes and, and certainly the, the diversity of, of national identities represented there is really unprecedented. Um, well over 100 countries uh, were represented in those spaces. Um, so creating a, a real space for exchanges and dialogue and learning uh, about people's experiences and the ways economic globalization was impacting people in different parts of the world. Um, so that really had never happened. I mean, the only place where global policies have been discussed on, on a large scale had been um, led by governments or corporations. And a process grounded in people's movements at this scale um, hadn't happened before. I mean, there certainly individual movements had convened global conferences of their members, um, but the World Social Forums um, covered a range of different movements and issues and was very intentional about trying to create space for those movements to converge and, and, and learn from one another and build networks. Jackie Smith is her name. She's a sociologist based at the University of Pittsburgh. She wrote an article about the World Social Forum and its wide-ranging impact. It's called Making Other Worlds Possible, and it appears in last March's issue of the journal Socialism and Democracy. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Can you talk about the World Social Forum's focus on centering the voices of oppressed groups? I mean, you referred to the fact that, uh, you referred to the, the willingness, the eagerness of uh, people perhaps in more privileged countries to hear the actual stories of what people were experiencing. So the, the World Social Forum was initially framed as a space for people uh, to put forward their vision of the global economy. And it was, it was timed to coincide with the World Economic Forum, which is held every year in Davos, Switzerland, and organized by really by the private organization of corporate elite and politicians and international officials of all sorts attend that meeting every year in January. And the World Social Forum was staged at the same time, saying that um, the world is not just about economics, there's social policies, and there's voices that aren't part of that conversation in Davos. And it was very much framed as a counter to that northern and elite frame of the Davos meeting. Um, and it was very deliberately staged in the Global South, and the activists were really conscious that the World Social Forum had to happen in the Global South. 
and for all of its iterations until very recently uh, when it was held in, in Canada, it was held in the Global South. Um, in the World Social Forum Charter, in the very first paragraphs, um, you see that the purpose of the meeting and the intention that activists have set out at the front of their principles that, that orient the forum is, is a, a critique of the hierarchies that um, neoliberal globalization have created among people. And, and so those hierarchies are, are very, very much in people's mind and the intention of subverting those is, is very visible in the programming in the forum and um, certainly among the leadership in the forum in, in how the plenary sessions, the big sessions that everyone attends, um, those are framed in a way to help raise questions about hierarchies and divisions and exclusions that have been normalized, that have come to be taken for granted in the larger culture. So that, that critique and that intention of lifting up voices that have been marginalized and made invisible by capitalist culture and practices, that's very much a part of what's celebrated at the forum and, and intentionally put at the front of the stage. And where activists failed to critique those hierarchies. So where, where there were too many men in, in the um, plenary sessions, which often happened. A lot of the leadership uh, reflected the hierarchies in our larger system. And, and so they, the activists themselves didn't always practice these, these principles, but when those contradictions were um, pointed out by activists themselves, you know, hierarchies of gender, race, class, age, indigeneity, uh, when those were challenged, um, there was effort in the process to, to respond and, and to rectify that. In your article in the journal Socialism and Democracy, you highlight and profile three movements or strands of organizing that have been inspired by or maybe fueled by is a better term or have definitely learned from a global justice movement organizing. Let's start with the right to the city movement and you continue to organize in this movement. What is the focus of right to the city? So the the idea in in this movement is really to argue that people who live in communities and, and cities uh, cities are, are where most of the world's people now live, um, that those people deserve a right to determine how that city develops. Um, and in particular, it really grew from a lot of the conversations that were becoming more visible through the world social forums, um, and that is the problem of housing. And a lot of um, urban slum dwellers in the countries where the forum was held would participate and, the, and they're pretty organized. Many of them have good organizational um, networks and, and we're building transnational ties partly through the forums um, and deepening an analysis of, of why is it that so many people are being marginalized and excluded from society by being denied a place to live. And, and so these conversations were able to build and, and develop and people could learn from what they saw happening in cities around the world and understand their problem in their community as something that wasn't really even about national policy, it was a global problem. And so the right to the city um, movement or alliances really uh, started to come together and coalesce in the world social forums. And there was simultaneously discussions in the global justice movement around human rights as being really threatened by the kind of neoliberal globalization that countries were embracing with their financial and trade policies. And so there was organizing trying to, to challenge trade and, and finance with a human rights frame. And so these strands of organizing and conversation have come together um, in a movement that we might call right to the city, 
Uh, we also have human rights cities movement. But the basic idea is that city policies, that, that government policies need to center the needs of people and make sure that people's basic needs are addressed and that the policies of economic globalization have been undermining people's ability to have homes, to have access to, to healthy food, and to um, have good work, decent work. So the right to the city and human rights cities is about, uh, we, we say, bringing human rights home, um, using human rights as a guide to policy rather than using economic growth as the main policy goal for uh, for our governments. What priority, if any, does the right to the city movement assign to taking back, reclaiming, occupying urban spaces and places? I think housing is is a priority for many of, of our movements, and certainly in Pittsburgh it is because we feel like if if you can't have a right to live in the city, it's that is you know, the most important right that you have. You have to be able to be part of the community. Um, so while there are other rights, and, and those rights that are also important to helping people live dignified lives in our community, so a right to transit, a right to um, access to healthy food, a right to education, and protection from discrimination of all kinds. All of the rights that we have um, economic and social and cultural rights and political rights go hand in hand, um, but without having a place to live and in, in safety and security in the city, you, you're not able to enjoy any of those other rights. So, um, so we've centered housing, uh, but with attention to um, the fact that, that we need all these other things as, as well. And in some places, um, occupying empty buildings and making places, um, you know, taking places uh, for us to live is part of the strategy. But f for many movements, it, it's happening on many fronts. So we're, you know, doing conventional advocacy around um, gaining affordable housing in new development and working to get improvements in existing housing stocks so that they remain affordable. Um, but there's also a growing uh, movement to, to really create alternatives to market-based housing. So community land trusts are an initiative that many cities are exploring and, and developing in more detail. Housing co-ops are another model that allow non-market forms of, of housing to be developed that can be permanently affordable, that aren't tied to these uh, highly competitive globalized markets that have enabled our the property in all of our cities to be subjected to um, financial speculation that's that's really global. So a lot of properties in in cities like Pittsburgh aren't even owned by people who live in our our community. They they're owned by um, investment firms that care very little for. Um, the people who live in the buildings and investors don't even know um, if they're investing in in housing or other kinds of real estate. Uh, their main goal is extracting a profit. So you know, having more local control of land in our city is really the the goal of these movements. And there's a variety of of approaches that that people in different places have been pursuing. But what's exciting is the new kind of momentum around and, and development of, of new ideas and new tools for making community land trusts and co-ops more plausible as an option for more people. I'm C.S. Song. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. That's Jackie Smith, professor of sociology at the University of Pittsburgh. We are talking about an article she wrote for the journal Socialism and Democracy. It's called Making Other Worlds Possible, The Battle in Seattle in World Historical Context. Much of the discourse around the right to the city movement revolves around rights. I mean, that's in the, the title, the name of the movement of the alliances 
And many scholars and, and some activists have argued against using a human rights, a rights framework. What's been their primary rationale for opposing a rights focus, and, and how would you assess that? This is a, a question that I, I think a lot about because um, I hear critiques from academics who argue that human rights is an imperialist kind of framework and um, activists who, who also think it's more conservative and, and really limits what's possible. And I think what's, what's really important in these movements is that the language that, that activists are using is what they refer to as a people-centered human rights. So the idea that human rights aren't, or they're not limited to what's defined or codified in international law, but they're inherent in people and communities and they're visible through the kinds of struggles that activists are engaged in. And you know, rights, human rights came before we had laws that recognized them. And there are many rights that we don't have effective legal protections for. And so rights can't be limited by the law. Certainly the, the legal systems that we have reinforce particular kinds of power relations that themselves undermine rights to equity and non-discrimination. So, so the, the framework of rights that's used by these movements is really not the formal legalistic approach, but rights in the terms of the inherent rights that, that people have as human beings to have the, the right to live, the right to have a place on this planet to live with dignity. And, and that is, is something that's beyond the, the institutions that we've created in our society. So that's not to say that those institutions aren't relevant to these movements and, and really the way that, um, that activists have, have thought about that is, is human rights can be a tool for us to push for really transformative kinds of changes to the institutions of capitalism, which really weren't designed to center people. In, in Pittsburgh, we, we uh, use the slogan, human rights don't trickle down, they rise up. So, so human rights aren't those rights that are defined in these, these big international treaties. They don't trickle down from the economic policies of economic globalization as proponents of economic policies like to, to say. Um, but really, we, they come from the struggles that, that people engage in as they demand their rights. So it's, it's very much a vision of human rights that comes from the bottom up. And I saw this in what was happening in the World Social Forums. I heard the language of rights in a lot of different spaces and conversations in the forums where there were people from all different places, all different classes, um, and rights was a language that was unifying. And, and so that I think is really the power of human rights language for social movements is it, it does provide a common foundation for, for dialogue and a vision of what kind of a society uh, we want. A second initiative you focus on in this article you wrote for the March 2020 issue of the journal Socialism and Democracy is Via Campesina. This is a network of peasant organizations and small farmers that began in Latin America, correct? Right. Via Campesina is a group that, that I first met in Brazil at the World Social Forums and began hearing a lot more about uh, because of its ability to use the World Social Forums to build a broad uh, alliance, a global alliance of farmers' movements. It really grew tremendously through the World Social Forums. It, its membership now expands to many parts of the global north. Small farmers in global north countries are, are active parts of the network. Um, and it also was, was able to um, get people beyond peasant movements to think about food in different ways and to really challenge some of the, the ways of, of thinking and the discourses of governments. 
um, that at the time we're, we're talking about food security and really um, using notions of food security to reinforce some of the industrial food policies that, that have become prominent uh, in our world today. Via Campesina's growth enabled it to um, really have an impact on that global conversation and, and they participated in the World Food, or food and Agriculture Organization um, negotiations around food security and got a, a different understanding of food and, and the concept of, of what they call food sovereignty. So again, just like the right to the city movement is looking for the control of, of land in cities, Via Campesina was working to make sure that farmers and and consumers of food, eaters, also could have control over the food that they produced and consumed. And so the notion of food sovereignty became something that folks, no matter what issue they would be working on, were exposed to in some level through the World Social Forum process. And uh, I think this helped contribute to the success that Via Campesina had in influencing some of the global um, government conversations around food and, and really putting forward an alternative to the global industrial food model. Can you tell us briefly a little more about why the notion of food security, which Via Campesina tried to replace with food sovereignty, why food security played into uh, mainstream agricultural and industrial policy? Food security is a concept that, that really reinforces the, or it, it doesn't challenge, we'll say, the, uh, the hierarchies in who controls access to food and who controls the decisions about what is produced and how. And, and so again, I think we're coming back to questions of control. And, and for Via Campesina, the decisions about what is produced, how it is produced, and, and who is producing it should be um, sovereign, should be, you know, individuals and communities should have a voice in that. The notion of, of food security is, again, coming from the top down from, from states, says that individual countries want to ensure that they have access to the food that their population needs. Whatever food that is or however it's produced is irrelevant in that way of thinking, um, but food sovereignty is a much more inclusive understanding of food and where it comes from and how it affects uh, both our communities, our society, how those the production of food shapes our communities and how it, it shapes our, our ecosystems. So it's, it's very much connected with concern for our environment. Tell us about the UN Declaration on the Rights of Peasants and Other People Working in Rural Areas and Via Campesina's role in getting it adopted by the, I believe, UN General Assembly in 2018. Great. Yeah, this, um, I mean, I think these, this conversation about Via Campesina in particular shows the importance of the networking process and the movement building process that the battle in Seattle triggered and that the World Social Forums helped sustain and continue and, and build. Um, and so the Via Campesina became involved in the Food and Agricultural Organization talks um, around food security, and, and there's a commission on, on food security that Via Campesina members have been active in and shaping and um, really monitoring and, and pushing against the industrial framework that's been there. And in engaging in this process in the United Nations, their conversations and their analysis about how to make sure that they could um, protect farmers' control over key decisions that affect their lives and their families and their communities and those who, who eat the food that they produce. Um, they, so in these conversations, again, the idea of rights is tied with 
the ability to to control important decisions that affect one's life and and so conversations in in via campesina led to an idea of pursuing a declaration on the rights of peasants in the general assembly and i think very much what they were doing is borrowing from strategies that indigenous peoples had used earlier to um, advance a similar um, declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples at the UN level to at least get governments to recognize, formally recognize um, those rights so that that could then be a lever for further pressure and advocacy um, aimed at advancing those rights. Jackie Smith is her name. She's a sociology professor at the University of Pittsburgh. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Indigenous movements, indigenous people's movements, are the third set of movements you investigate and comment on in this article. There are two ideas or notions that have gathered steam among uh, activists internationally and I assume among indigenous activists, especially because of a movement spaces generated by post-Seattle global justice activism. The first is the rights of Mother Earth, and the second is Buen Vivir, which translates as living well. I think it's a French for living well. We don't have a lot of time left, but can you lay out the fundamentals of each of these ideas? Yes, I think... Uh, a really key point is that these are two ideas that became much more widely known globally and understood and appreciated um, by the global activist community because of the World Social Forums and because of the centering of indigenous voices in those spaces. Um, and as indigenous people um, point out, often point out, they are they represent the longest struggle of 500 years or more of struggle against global capitalism. So, so they, they bring a lot of experience and have maintained a cultural elements and, and critiques that are important and remain important um, in the struggle today. And I think activists who are non-indigenous are coming to appreciate more that the cultural traditions in many indigenous cultures can be tools for um, bringing forward alternatives to economic globalization. So um, recognizing that we are not separate from nature, that the earth is our mother, is really essential to sustaining life on this planet. And with climate change, we see that that's an increasingly obvious fact, but our system is set up in a, a very different way that separates people from uh, the well-being of our environment and so so the rights of of nature the rights of mother earth are are really i think an important focus now uh, that many advocates uh, recognize and and i know in lots of cities and communities like mine we're talking about how do we establish institutions that protect the rights of of nature the uh buen vivir is another really important idea that decenters capitalism's focused on accumulation and wealth and consumption and says, hey, look at where this has gotten us. Consumption isn't fulfilling for us as human beings. It's undermined the well-being of our societies and of our communities. And maybe we need to rethink that as a value for organizing our policies and societies around growth and accumulation and consumption and shift towards thinking about what what do we need what makes us content or happy and what helps sustain good communities you know those are, are ideas that have gained a great deal of salience in a lot of conversations not just in the movements and i think the pandemic has really encouraged many more people to think about um, the limits of a growth-oriented economy and um, are questioning whether we, we should really rethink what are our main and core priorities and values in our, in our policies and society. So indigenous movements via Campesina, 
the right to the city movement. I mean, there's, of course, much more we could we could say about these movements, these strands of organizing. And certainly you can and should check out Jackie Smith's article in the journal Socialism and Democracy. It is the March 2020 issue. Her article is called Making Other Worlds Possible, The Battle in Seattle in World Historical Context. Uh, and of course, there are many, many other movements that are part of the global justice movement. It's called, uh, justly, it's called a movement of movements Building unity across diverse movements, across diverse groups, is, as you write, an all-important task. How is that task, this is a, a big question, I'm asking you to generalize, but how is that task being carried out, and how can it be done better, in your opinion? Wow. Well, I think one of the the importance of building unity across our diverse identities is, you know, first of all, is to build enough power to really transform the system that we have, which is is tremendously powerful and and operates, you know, worldwide. So our movements have to be able to build uh, globally um, across all of these differences in order to confront that. There's many, um, many ways that uh, we could do it better. One of the, the biggest challenges, I think, is to find some common language and common values that can bring people together, um, as well as shared visions about what what kind of society we want. I mean, I, I guess then what the lessons that we can take from the movements since Seattle are that, um, creating spaces where diverse groups can come together and understand their experiences as, as people and not as representations um, that are conveyed through mass media or via politicians. Um, those ways of communicating often, often generates dehumanized perspectives of others from other countries, from other communities, from other ethnicities and racial groups. Um, that othering and creating of, of differences and divides is really what has what is essential to the operation of, of capitalism. And and that's really why in the World Social Forum Charter there's attention to those hierarchies, those divisions among people that have enabled um, capital to exploit those divisions for profit. So um, building unity is a way to prevent capital from exploiting people's work and, and extracting profits through the divisions across different societies. So the, the divisions across countries, across nations, and gender divisions and racial divisions have been used to extract profits. So if we can build um, unity across those divisions and break down those divisions between nations, between genders, between uh, racial groups, and, and help people understand that we're all people and we all have certain needs and rights, we have certain rights, that can be a foundation for unity and for a collective visioning about what kind of society could protect everyone's ability to to live dignified and healthy and good lives. You write in your piece that the contemporary wave of global justice protests constitutes a third wave, a third wave of anti-colonial and decolonial resistances. What were the first two? So the first wave was the initial resistance to colonialism and the rise of, of independent states from the former colonized regions of the world. Um, and the second, we might include in this um, language of, of scholars of the World Revolution of, of 1968, which was movements resisting the 
neo-colonial practices of of states and again challenging some of the hierarchies of this system um, that um, separated people according to racial hierarchies and gendered hierarchies. Um, and that world revolution of 1968 generated a process similar, I guess, to what we saw in Seattle and, and the world social forms of people and movements coming together in new ways and, and challenging prevailing ways of thinking and generating ongoing conversations about um, how we understand our world and the possibilities for a different world. And so I guess that is really what, what's meant by the idea of decolonization is, is throwing off old ways of organizing society, but also organizing our, our thinking in those hierarchical terms. So the revolutions of 1968 began challenging some of those ways of thinking and helped support ongoing movement building around feminist and anti-racial struggles that our movements today have have built upon. Um, but I think there's there's even more transformative lessons that have come out of the wave of organizing since Seattle, which have been very global in nature and, and better able than those earlier revolutions to critique the, the state and that hierarchy of nation, nations in the world, and really thinking about the world as a global system. So um, the project of decolonization is something that has to take place on a global scale and, and not just on a national scale. So I think that's, that's what's reflected in this idea of the third wave of, of decolonizing struggles. I'm CS. Jackie Smith, the sociologist and veteran organizer, joins us on Against the Grain. The last physical gathering of the World Social Forum took place in 2018 in Brazil. What's the status and, as far as you can tell, the future of the forum? So movements are complicated things. And um, yes, the World Social Forum continues. And, and in fact, I think there was a, a social forum held um, virtual. I know there was because some of our, our folks participated in it. Um, so there are people who have been involved in that process that have continued to be involved. I've uh, realized that I, I can't do organizing on a, on a global scale and also be remain very engaged in local work and local struggles. So um, I think a lot of the activists I worked with in the United States Social Forum where many of the key groups that were leaders in, in the United States forums um, and also in the World Forum, uh, Grassroots Global Justice, for instance, is, is a key group that has connected American uh, activists with the World Social Forum process. And they decided that, that the process, the World Social Forum was, was very helpful to movement building at the time that it, it came, but their needs weren't being served, were, were no longer being served and they, they were choosing to, to move in some new directions, um, but, but certainly continuing to work with many of the networks that were formed and built through the World Social Forum. So. Um, so the World Social Forum will will continue, and there will be people who continue to be engaged in it. But uh, there's these other processes and movement building and alternative building spaces that have been generated by it, and and those continue to occupy activist energies and to bring in more people and support. So the the World Social Forum doesn't have to be the only place where these kinds of conversations take place because it's really spun off a whole bunch of other spaces and, and learning opportunities and networks um, that are, are continuing these conversations and building on the great deal of knowledge and ideas and language that were generated through more than a, a decade of world social forum 
activism. So I think uh, it served a very important purpose at that particular moment in the early 2000s, and it really inspired and helped create lots of other um, entities that are continuing to build on those same principles. Jackie Smith, professor of sociology at the University of Pittsburgh. Her books include Social Movements for Global Democracy and Social Movements in the World System, The Politics of Crisis and Transformation, which she co-authored with Don Wiest. And we've been talking about her article, Making Other Worlds Possible, The Battle in Seattle in World Historical Context, which appeared in the journal Socialism and Democracy. Uh, Jackie, thanks so much for your work and for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.